And find your seats. If you could turn to Exodus chapter 12, we'll start in verse 1. Let's uh, read Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. If you would, read along with me. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your, your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lamb at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasting or roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Not, do not eat any of the raw or boil in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you so much. Lord, I thank you for the Passover lamb, Lord, for Jesus, Lord, for his death, that our sins may be atoned for, that we may be forgiven, Lord, that we may have a relationship with you, a holy, just God. God, I thank you for this passage and how you um, ordained history and that how you recorded it, inspired by you, Lord, that we know exactly what happened in Egypt with the Israelites and how this Passover lamb brought salvation from the slavery of the Egyptians. Lord, I pray that we hear those words and we just think about our slavery to sin and the freedom we have and the redemption that you offer through your Son. Lord, I pray as we go through the details of this passage, Lord, that we understand in a more deeper level exactly what happened at Passover, Lord, and in that understand exactly what happened to us as we put our faith in you. God, I pray if there's anyone that doesn't know you this morning, Lord, that they listen to this sermon, that they hear the good news of your son and what he did on the cross, and that they wouldn't leave this place without putting their faith in him. Be with us right now. In your son's name, amen. Last week we went over chapter 11, which I said was a kind of a transitional chapter from the nine plagues to the tenth plague, the tenth and final plague, really the Passover narrative. 
The Passover, I said last week, and I think, I hope you saw it as we transition into it, really is at the heart of the Exodus, Israel um, leaving Egypt. And in a sense, as we've been saying from the beginning of, of the book of Exodus, Exodus is all about the revelation of God's name, God revealing his name to us, to Israel, to Egypt, to, to the whole earth. Therefore, if the Passover is the heart of the Exodus, really that means the Passover is at the heart of who God is. It's at the heart of the character of God. It's at the heart of what it means that God is Yahweh. Passover shows us God's character. Probably clearer than any other passage in Scripture, or any other event at least, besides the cross itself. The Passover teaches us that God is both merciful, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins. God is merciful, but God is just at the same time, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is Exodus 34, 6 through 7, this revelation of God's name where God is both merciful and just. And there's this question just right in these two verses, how can God be both? How can God be both merciful, forgiving iniquities, transgressions, and sins, and at the same exact time just, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Well, the answer is the Passover lamb. Therefore, Our passage is extremely important. We're going to spend some time in the next few weeks talking about the Passover lamb. Today, I want to go over eight details that help explain the Passover. As I read through that that passage that we're going to go over right now, I hope you saw the different details that were within that passage. All these details are are there to help explain exactly what is happening in the Passover. In fact, if you go through the the Pentateuch, the first five books of of Scripture, it has a ton of details in it. That's why a lot of people struggle going through the Pentateuch. All these details explain exactly who God is and our relationship with God and, and this grace that he's offering. And this is true in the passage, our passage this morning. There's eight details that help explain the Passover. And so I want to go through that these eight details this morning. The first detail is the time of the Passover. Look at verse 1. Exodus chapter 12, verse 1 says this, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. God is commanding here that this month that they're in, this, this month that the Passover is going to take place from there on would be the first month of the year for the Jewish calendar. Again, I, I hope you see the significance of this. God is reorienting the Jewish calendar so the focus of it is on the Passover. And just think about the significance of that. Right? He resets the Jewish counselor and it starts with the Passover. If he, if he said, God really wants us to see the Passover as a new beginning for Israel. In fact, when Israel gets through the Red Sea, is on the other side of it, out of Egypt, out of slavery. It's, it's really a new creation, this nation. A new beginning, a new creation. Look at verse 3. It says this, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month. Now, remember verse 2. It says this, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. 
It shall be the first month of the year for you. So you have the year and then the first month is the the Passover month. Now look at verse 3. It says this. Tell all the congregation that on the 10th day, year month day, and the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb. That's the Passover lamb. According to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Now look at verse 6. And you shall keep it, that's the Passover lamb, until the 14th day of this month. And when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lamb at twilight. So think about that. You go from year, month, day, the 10th day, the 14th day, and then a specific moment. The congregation of Israel shall kill the lambs at twilight. All the lambs would be killed at the exact same time. In Israel, or for Israel in Egypt. So the first detail that we see is, is this time, which, which tells us that this is a significant event and really points us to a new beginning for Israel. The second detail is the specific instructions for preparation. Look at the end of verse 3. It says this, Every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household, in verse 4. And, it, and if the household is too small for a lamb... Then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Now, think about this. Think about how much preparation this would have taken. First of all, if your household is too small to eat a whole lamb, so you have to figure that out. Is our household too small to eat a whole lamb? If if it is, you would have to go find your nearest neighbor and you'd have to make plans with them. And listen to what it says. It says, according to, to what each can eat. We're going to find out later that there should, there's not supposed to be any type of leftovers after this meal. So imagine how difficult this would be. Like the exact amount of food. I, I know as we host more, at least when I barbecue, I never make just enough, right? I always make way too much. Why? Because I would be terrified to run out of food and leave people hungry. And even then, when I'm barbecuing, usually I'm making way too much and I'm still stressed that I didn't make enough. (laughs) The Israelites had to make just enough for everyone. They had to consider how many people, how big the lamb is, how much each person would eat. There was a lot of thought and preparation. And remember the time. 14 days of preparation. 14 days to figure out if the household could eat a whole lamb or not. If not, find a neighbor and plan with them. Then you would have to find a lamb that was perfect, without blemish. Then you would kill the lamb on the 14th day at twilight. 14 days of preparation. You know what this did? It really forced the Israelites to think. It became a time of devotion. 14 days. You had 400 years of slavery, nine awesome plagues. And then the Israelites had 14 days to reflect on what just happened. 14 days to reflect on what is about to happen as they get ready to kill this lamb. This preparation was a way to force the Israelites to reflect on what was going on as they prepared. It became a devotion. It became a time of devotion and meditation on God's justice, wrath, grace on this lamb. Which leads to a third detail. 
They were to kill a lamb without blemish. Without blemish. Look at verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Why without blemish? Of course, this points to Jesus, and I think most of us realize this, right? A perfect sacrifice. But there's two reasons in the, the Passover, I think, a lamb without blemish. The first reason is this, that the, the lamb was costly. And this would have been a very costly sacrifice. Remember, the, the Israelites were shepherds. That's where they made their money was with their sheep, to take your best sheep, unblemished sheep, a perfect sheep. Right? And, it, and the value was, was not just the sheep itself, but its potential for offspring. Think about that. It was young, a year old. That means there's many years of reproduction that, that could come from this one sheep. Very costly sacrifice for Israel. We find out, right, throughout the history, which is a history of sacrifices, there's always this temptation not to give God the best. Not to give God your best sheep, but one with blemishes. But of course, God not only demands... He also deserves our best. So, first reason is this was a costly sacrifice. But the second reason is this. Only an unblemished lamb, only a perfect lamb, could atone for sins. There's an important theological implication here. In one sense, a blemished lamb or an imperfect lamb could only die for its imperfections. But an unblemished, perfect lamb could die for another's imperfections. J.P. Matir writes, uh, it seems very likely that behind the demands for perfection lies the truth that while the imperfect can die for its own sins, only the sinless can bear the sins of another. The lamb had to be perfect to atone for sins, to die in place of another. Look at verse 6. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Now again, I want you to think about these details. These details tell us the story, give us exactly what God's doing here. The 10th day, the head of the household was to pick out a lamb. The lamb had to be without blemish. Again, very costly for a shepherd. He would have been tempted to pick a blemished lamb. But look what it says in verse 6. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. This is built in accountability. You would pick the, the lamb in the 10th day, but you wouldn't kill it till the 14th day, meaning it would spend four days within the household. Four days of being examined by everyone within the household. If you picked a blemished lamb, at some point within those four days, the household would figure it out. It really gave the, the household four days Time to make sure that this was truly an unblemished lamb. But there's another interesting thought in this. The lamb would spend four days with the family. In other words, this family would, would keep it. They'd probably keep it in their house. They would feed it. They would care for it. I'm sure they played with it like a, like a pet. It would almost become part of the family, again, like a, a beloved pet. Then on the 14th day, the dad would grab that lamb in front of the household and slit its throat. 
and drain out its blood and paint the doorway, the doorpost of the household. I think this message was clear. This lamb, this, this lamb that became a bloody mess took the place of the firstborn son. Again, there's a devotional aspect to this. There's four days of anticipating the slaughter. I mean, the whole family would have known what was coming. Imagine what the firstborn son thought as he was playing with his lamb. This lamb will die so I can live. Imagine what the mom and dad thought as they watched the firstborn son feed the lamb, play with the lamb. Can you just imagine the gratitude toward this lamb? Before and even after killing it? Which leads to the fourth detail. The blood of the lamb was put on the doorpost. Look at verse 7. Then, thou sh- then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Again, we see specific details here. They would slaughter the lamb. They would slit its throat. They would drain out its blood. And they would take that blood and, and paint it on the doorpost, the doorway to enter the house. Why? I think it's an important question to ask. Why? I want you to see the significance of this. Look at Exodus 12, verse 13. It says this. The blood, verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. I I just listen to those words. When I see the blood... Not when I see you. That's significant. When I see the blood, I'll pass over you. It's significant because we've seen in the nine other plagues, when God saw the Israelites, some of the plagues didn't fall on them. Some of the plagues were were just for the Egyptians, and God saw his people and didn't let the the plagues fall on them. But in this plague, it's, it's not their heritage. It's not because they're sons of Abraham that this plague's not going to fall on them. It's not because they, they did good works. He says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. It's because of the lamb. So there's two questions I think we should ask when we come to a passage like this. Right? The first question is this, why the doorpost? I think that's interesting. And the second one is, why blood? I think these details tell us exactly what's going on. So let's just ask this first question. Why the doorpost? The answer is actually simple. The doorposts represent the household. It's where the family would go in and out of the house. Therefore, the doorway represented the whole household, the people within. I mean, as I was studying this, I realized that's kind of true today. I drove home this week and was just thinking about the, the doorway and we pulled up to my house and in our doorway we have a sign that says Heiner's established 2010. It's like, it represents our household, the doorway. That's how you get access to, to us when you come over. Therefore, the blood on the doorway, on the, on the doorpost, really showed that the whole family was under the condemnation of sin. In fact, not just the firstborn, the whole family. Look at Exodus 21, or 12, verse 21. I think this is interesting. Same, same chapter, verse 21. 
It says this, Then Moses called all the elders of the Israelites and said to them, Go and select the lambs for yourself according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a, a bunch of um, hyssop and dip it into the blood that is in the basin, and, and touch the lintel of the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. Now listen to this. None of you, right, no one, shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. You just kind of get a, a sense there that, that no one would be safe, no Israelite would be safe outside the covering of the blood of the lamb within the household. So the doorpost represented the whole household. Which leads to the second question, why blood then? Why slaughter an animal, take its blood, and then paint it on a doorpost? Why blood? Well, I think Leviticus 17, verse 11, answers this question. It says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. There's no mystery here. In the Bible, blood is identified with life. Because blood carries the elements needed for life. In fact, we, we kind of see the heart. If the heart's beating, someone's alive. If it's not beating, they're, they're not alive. But think about it. Without blood, the heart is useless. What is one of the first things you do to check to see if someone's alive? Check the pulse. See if blood is moving within the body. Therefore, really, the shedding of blood in Scripture represents the shedding of life. Again, Leviticus 17, verse 11 says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood... And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. In other words, it's a life for life. Why life for life? Because the penalty of sin is death. That's the payment. That's the penalty. That's what's owed when man sins. And God made that very clear in the garden. Eat from this one tree. You eat that tree, it's death. Israel was guilty before a holy God, therefore they deserved death. Israel, or, uh, Ezekiel 18.20 says this, A soul who sins shall die. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages, this is what's owed, for the wages of sin is death. And Israel was a sinful nation, and we're going to see that very clearly <laughs> as we move forward. In fact, God continuously calls them a stiff-necked people. In fact, I think that, that term stiff neck comes from their, their greatest sin probably right in the beginning of Exodus where they go and, and worship a calf made out of gold and say, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. I mean, like, how simple is that? And I think God says, well, you're like that calf, you stiff-necked people, stubborn. They're a sinful people. They deserve death. But look at, look at Exodus 12, verse 30. I just want to... I want you to see this. It's so important understanding Ex the uh, Passover. Exodus chapter 12, verse 30 says this. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. Think about that. As the Egyptians were crying, what were the Israelites doing? Feasting. I just wonder, and I, I'm assuming that this is true, but 
I wonder, I can just imagine, could, could they hear the cries of the Egyptians off in the distance as they were feasting on this lamb? And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Every household in Egypt, there was death. The wages of sin is death, and in every house there was death. But think about it. This statement was also true for the Israelites. Not a house where someone was not dead. For the Israelites, instead of the firstborn, it was the lamb. There was death. The lamb took the place of the firstborn. Therefore, the Israelites fasted or feasted, not fasted, the Israelites feasted in joy, while at the same time the Egyptians cried out in grief and sorrow. The blood of the lamb on the doorposts showed, showed God that the family's sins was atoned for, atoned for, paid for by the Passover lamb. Really, when we read this story, the blood tells us that God cannot just forgive sins. And that's a teaching that I think is really popular within Christianity today, that God can just forgive sins. In fact, there's so many people that refuse to go to church, refuse to live godly lives, refuse to, to follow what Scripture says, refuse to even pick up the Scriptures and read it. There's nothing in their lives that look like they're devoted to, to Christ and God whatsoever, yet when you ask them if they're Christians, they'll say yes. If you ask them if they're going to heaven, they'll say yes, God will forgive me. It's not true. God cannot just forgive sins. God is just, who will by no means clear the guilty. It's so important that we understand this. Listen, for God to be merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins, there needs to be a payment. Because God is also just, who by no means clear the guilty. Again, this is the clearest revelation of God's name, Yahweh, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. We see this very clearly in the New Testament, too. Hebrews 9.22 says this, Indeed, under the law, that's the Old Testament, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There has to be a payment. There has to be death. Because that's the penalty. That's the wages. This leads to a fifth detail. Exodus 12, verse 8. Really, the fifth detail is just the Passover feast itself. Verse 8 says this, They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Shall eat the lamb, in other words, with, with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. Bitter herbs were really there as a reminder of the bitter slavery that they had in Egypt. What, what really what they were leaving behind, this bitterness. And this is purposely meant to be connected with unleavened bread. 
what's unleavened bread or why unleavened bread? Well, Exodus 12, verse 39 says this. It tells us that they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provision for themselves. In other words, they were, they were so quickly taken out of Egypt, they didn't have time for their bread to leaven. If you know anything, which I don't, uh, when it comes to bread, for bread to leaven, it takes time. It has to sit. As we will see, the Israelites were to eat a Passover lamb in readiness and anticipation for being thrust out of Egypt. So there was no time to leaven the bread, to let it sit and leaven. Again, there's meant to be a connection between the bitter herbs and unleavened bread. They're meant to complement each other, to tell a story. The bitter herbs recalled the bitterness of life in Egypt. The unleavened bread reminded them, reminded the Israelites of their readiness to depart. In the first three chapters of Exodus, we see them crying out to God of their harsh slavery. In fact, we see it again in chapter 5 to remind them of the pain and suffering they had in Egypt. And it's going to be super important because we're going to see very, very quickly that they get out in the wilderness and say, hey, we want to be back in Egypt. It was really good there. The bitter herbs and unleavened bread was a reminder of what they came from, the harsh slavery in Egypt, how bad it was. This leads to a sixth detail, sixth detail, how the Passover lamb itself should be prepared and eaten. It's a sixth detail. Look at verse 9. It says this, Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head and its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In other words, every part of the Passover lamb needs to be gone by morning, either eaten or burned. Again, we get this idea that the Passover lamb had a specific purpose. It shouldn't be used for anything else. Its only purpose was to provide a covering from from the wrath of God to atone for Israel's sins by its blood or and to nourish God's people for the events that will follow the next day by eating it. It covered their sins and nourished them. That's its purpose. Therefore, nothing was to be left over after that night was done. Either it was to be eaten or burned. Which leads to a seventh detail. The manner in in which the Passover should be eaten. Look at verse 11. It says this, In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. You eat the Passover, Passover, in other words, in a, in a manner of anticipation. Anticipating leaving Egypt, being freed from slavery. Gaining new life in a relationship with Yahweh as the people of God. In other words, the Passover was to be eaten in anticipation, really trusting in God's word, that God's words would come true. That means, and I I just kind of meditated on this this week, the, the Passover feast was to be eaten in faith. Think about it. 
Think of the rationale behind this process. You were to pick your best animal, your best lamb, right? Unblemished, perfect lamb. You were to keep it for four days within your household. You were to slaughter it, then eat it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread, and then burn all its leftovers. And in doing this, you are to anticipate freedom. <laughs> like this was going to work somehow. You know, just think of where they're at. They had nine awesome plagues. I mean, the whole Nile turned into blood, right? The, the lights just turned out, darkness that can be felt. Nine awesome plagues, and not one of them worked. Pharaoh would not let the Israelites go. And then God comes and says, slaughter this animal, paint the blood on the doorpost, and when, and when you eat it, do it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. Eat it, in other words, in faith that you'll be freed in the morning. I really think the, the author of Hebrews picks up on this in Hebrews 11, verse 28. It says this, By faith, by faith he, this is Moses, by faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them, that them is the Israelites. The Israelites did all of this, in other words, by faith. One commentator put it this way, like Noah previously, Moses and the Israelites believed God's announcement about the traumatic judgment to come in an unseen but fast approaching future. A final plague would afflict, uh, would afflict death on the firstborn throughout. Like Noah, in their faith, they obeyed God's instruction for their protection, smearing the blood of the lamb without blemish on their door frames and eating the Passover meal in their homes. By acting in faith, it preserved life. In other words, it brought salvation. It was salvation by God's grace through faith. It took faith to obey God. Which leads to our last detail, eighth detail, the purpose of the Passover lamb. If you would look at verse 12. Verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Let me just point something out here in verse 12. Look what it says. I Who's that? It's Yahweh. God. I will pass through the land of Egypt. I will strike all the firstborn. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And, and we know the capital L-R-D means Yahweh. I am Yahweh. What's that sound like? Sounds like Exodus 3, the burning bush, when, when Moses asks, hey, when the people ask me, what's your name? And, and God says, I am. I am who I am. In other words, I'm about to show you who I am. And it says here, I am Yahweh. I will pass through the land of Egypt. I will strike all the firstborn. I will execute judgment. God is a God of justice. He is holy. 
He will judge sins. And you know what? That's terrifying for sinners. When Yahweh entered Egypt that night, the night of the Passover, as absolute Lord and judge, listen, this is so key in understanding the Passover, and it's really key in understanding the gospel. Israel's problem was no longer how to escape Pharaoh. Israel's problem was how to be safe before a holy God. The purpose of the Passover feast, the purpose of the Passover lamb, was to protect Israel from God. To save Israel from God's justice and holy wrath. And I want you to keep that in your mind. We're going to come back to that thought that God is just and holy. And for sinners, that's scary. That's terrifying. In fact, again, Israel needed the Passover lamb to save themselves from God. In fact, let me just say this real quick. How many of you guys say that you're saved? You don't have to raise your hand. Just in your heart. Have you ever asked saved from what? You know what the answer is? Save from God. Save from God's holy wrath against sin. That's what Israel is being saved from here. It's key in understanding the Passover. It's key in understanding the gospel. One of our greatest problems is God's justice. We wouldn't want it any other way. We wouldn't want an unjust God. That would be unbearable. We want a holy, just God. But as sinners, that's a great problem for us. We'll come back to that thought in a second. Look at verse 13. It says this, the blood, verse 13. The blood, that's the Passover lamb's blood. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land Egypt. That's exactly what happened. When God saw the blood in the household, he passed over, right? His wrath passed over that household of the Israelites. And those Israelites received mercy and grace. And this was the purpose. This is the purpose of the Passover lamb. That's where it gets its name. So that God's wrath would pass over those who are under the covering of the blood of the Lamb. So this is where I want to end today. All these details tell us a lot about the Passover, but of course this points us forward to Jesus. Of course this points us forward to the gospel. I want to end here. Look again at verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, okay, I want you to see what's happening here. Right? The blood becomes a sign. It come, becomes a sign for the Israelites. Right, The blood, blood is a sign for you. It, it shows the Israelites just how ugly their sins are. This, this lamb that spent four days in the household that became like a pet, it would have been, been slaughtered, the, the neck slit right in front of the whole household, and the blood painted on the doorposts. Vivid Im, imagery of how ugly our sin is as humans. But it also is a sign to God. Look what it says. When I, that's Yahweh, when I see the blood, that's a sign. 
It was a sign. Right? When, when God saw this sign, when I saw the blood, it was a sign that the sins of the household had been atoned for. Had been paid for, in other words. The wages of sin is death. There was death. The household had been forgiven. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. You know what? We have a sign too. It's the cross. The cross shows us how bad our sins are. I mean, think about that. It took the death of the Son of God, the firstborn Son of God, who came and lived a perfect life and, and died on the cross. It took his death, his brutal death. The wrath of God poured out on him to save us to free us from slavery, not slavery to Egypt, slavery of sin, but there's a correlation there. To redeem us, to pull us out of slavery, took the death of the Son of God. Right? The cross is a sign to us, but listen, it's also a sign to God that our sins, past, present, and future, have been atoned for, have been paid for, have been forgiven through the blood of Jesus. In fact, let's end here. If you would, turn with me to 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. First John chapter 1, verse 5. It says this in, in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is light, meaning he is holy. There's no darkness in him at all. In fact, he destroys darkness. His presence just destroys sin and darkness and evil. Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. It just doesn't make sense. Darkness can't fellowship with light. God's presence just destroys darkness. And if we walk in darkness, what's that mean for us? But, verse 7, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. It's really key, by the way. It shows who's truly in the light, those that want fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And then verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I hope you see the dilemma there, right? If you walk in darkness, you don't fellowship with God. If you say you have no sin, you lie. <laughs> it's a big problem. Well, verse 9, and I have to say this is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture because I'm a sinner, even as a Christian. It says this in verse 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, 
through my walk as a Christian, I've come to this passage all the time as I have wrestled with the old man and flesh in my life. And when I have failed and sinned, I come here and, and confess my sin. It's really talking about bringing it to the light, exposing it before God. And if you do that, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But, but every time I've come to this passage, there's a word that just doesn't seem to fit. It's that word, just. It seems odd here. If I've studied scripture, usually God's justice is connected to his wrath. And that's the last thing I want as a sinner. Who will by no means clear the guilty because he's just. It's God's mercy that I I, I cling to when I need forgiveness. But look what John says in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. John here, inspired by God, connects God's justice with his forgiveness. In other words, think about this. To not forgive us as Christians, those that have put their faith in Christ, to not forgive us would make God unjust. How could that be? Well, the answer is verse 7. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. If you're a Christian this morning, meaning you have put your faith in Christ, truly have trusted in him, his life, his death, and his resurrection— then the blood of Jesus has cleansed you from all sins. Christ has atoned for your sins. Christ has paid the price for your sins, just like the Passover lamb. Therefore, it would be unjust for God to exact two payments for the same sin that's already been paid for. That's amazing. Once you are saved... In the family of God, the justice of God becomes beautiful. Before the cross, before you put your faith in in Jesus, God's justice is is scary because, because his wrath is coming. But after the cross, after you put put your faith in Christ, God's justice is our security. It's comfort. Because after salvation, it would be unjust for God to punish you. And we have learned throughout Scripture that God is not going to sacrifice his character, his holy nature, his justice. Why would it be unjust to punish you? Because of the blood of Christ. Verse 7, the blood of Jesus has his son cleanses us from all sins. Therefore, Exodus 12, 13 becomes true for us too. The blood shall be a sign for you. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you. The blood of Christ becomes a sign for us. How bad our sins are that it took the death of the Son of God to to atone for it. But also, the blood of Christ becomes a sign to God. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you. Therefore, as Christians, as Christians, this is the good news. 1 John 1, 9 is true for you. If we confess our sins, he, that's God, is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins. That's good news. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I am so thankful for your son. I am so thankful for his death and sacrifice on the cross that his blood spilt for us, Lord. His blood given to us, right? His life for our life, ransomed from slavery. All these imageries that we see in Exodus, Lord, pointing us to, to the truth that is, that is us, Lord, that we all have had personal exoduses, Lord, for those that have put faith in you from slavery to sin to freedom, from a, the wages of death to life. But that's all through the crucifixion. That's all through your son, the payment he made. God, I, I pray that we're in awe, Lord, as we go through the book of Exodus and we think of the Passover lamb and your wrath pass over in us, Lord, as we see it pointing to your son, Lord. I pray for anyone that's in this room right now, Lord, that may not have a personal relationship with you, may never have cried out to you for mercy and, and put their trust in your son, who is the payment of sins. And I pray for them, Lord, that they would trust in him, his perfect life, his death, and then being raised on the third day, the promise of eternity with you in joy. God, we praise you in your son's name. Amen.